Attention! This makes absolutely no sense. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Xander's Facts. Hey, hey, y'all, what's going on? Welcome into Xander's Facts. I am, of course, the aforementioned Xander. And no, this is not a new episode of the Xander's Facts podcast this week. So sad. We have got an all-new Xander's Facts flashback. For the first part of August, Xander's taking a little vacation from the podcast, but we still got some Xander's Facts flashbacks to turn out for you in case you're missing some important topics, like the one we're talking about this week, which I'm going to introduce in just a second. But before I do that... Remember that if you liked the facts on all the previous Sanders Facts podcasts, and you think you're going to like the facts on this week's Sanders Facts podcast, remember to click the follow button on this podcast, this episode, the Sanders Facts flashback. Remember to download this podcast, the Sanders Facts flashback. Remember to rate the podcast, review the podcast. Go on all your socials, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. I may be taking a vacation from the podcast, but not from social media. Sanders Facts, that's Xander with a Z. And most importantly, remember to tell your friends, spread the facts, Xander's Facts Podcast. Listen to any of our past episodes, including last week, episode 72. I had our Xander's Facts soccer analyst, Emma Adams, on. We previewed the club soccer season. The Premier League begins this weekend on Friday. Oh my gosh, it is going to be good. You got to watch it and you may not understand, but you probably will if you listen to episode 72. And you hear our preview of all the top five leagues in Europe for soccer, including the Premier League. So you should go check that out. Spit in the truth. And you should also check out Xander's Weekend Facts, which is still coming out every Sunday morning. Our newsletter on Substack, which is linked in this episode's description. Check that out. And the link tree has all the Xander's Facts links that you need, including for the YouTube channel. Last week, episode 72 came out on YouTube. And this Xander's Facts flashback is coming out on YouTube, too. So check out Xander's Facts on YouTube. So now that I got all that stuff out of the way, I'm going to introduce our Xander's Facts flashback for this week, which is episode 55 from back in March of this year. We are talking about Ukraine. We haven't talked about Ukraine in a while on this podcast, but the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the war is still going on. Ukraine has survived for now. The fighting is mostly in the eastern part of the region, and from when we were talking about this back in March, a lot has changed, but the origins of this war in Ukraine are interesting, fascinating, and you probably should learn about them. If you haven't, if you haven't listened to episode 55, this episode is when I introduce a new special guest, brand new special guest to the Xander Sfax podcast, Dr. Bobby, who is an expert on basically Russia, Eastern Europe, like all this stuff. He knows what he's talking about, and he knew what he was talking about on episode 55, which is about the beginnings of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. This was back in March. So some of the stuff probably is going to be outdated, but the beginnings, the origins are stuff you need to know about. So here we go. This week, it's episode 55. We are going back to on the Sanders Facts Flashback. Xander's Facts. Xander's Facts Podcast. We are continuing on the podcast here on episode 55 with a brand new Xander's Facts guest. 
We have got Dr. Bobby. He is the director of the Russian program at Virginia Tech. Dr. Bobby, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Xander. Good to be here. Well, the thing we're going to talk about is definitely not good. We've got some serious stuff to talk about going on over in Ukraine. As you all probably know by now, Russia has invaded Ukraine. And this is the things that we're seeing are sad. They're terrible. It's just awful. But I brought in Dr. Bobby to you know, basically describe what's going on over there because he can do it a lot better than I can. Duh. So first question I've got for you, Dr. Bobby, is basically just an overview. Why is Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, invading Ukraine right now? Well, right now, I think he actually saw an opportunity. You know, I think he considers the uh, the West, Western Europe, and the United States at a particularly weak point. And I think he also thought that time might have been running out as far as you know expanding the uh, the Russian sphere of influence. And I think that is probably you know as to the question why that is probably why this is taking place is you know an expansion of the Russian sphere of influence. I know they're you know throwing a lot of words around about you know restoring the Russian Empire, restoring the uh, the Soviet Union, and things like that. There is a bit of a 19th century mentality, actually even more of a colonialist, uh, imperialist mentality going on here. But really, I think what it what it boils down to more than anything else is trying to expand the Russian sphere of influence, trying to regain, I think, what Putin and a lot of Russians think was lost with the fall of the Soviet Union in the early 1990s. Yeah. And you said Putin thought that the West was weak and probably wouldn't unify against him. But that has not been the case so far. I think, he, you know, he probably thought especially the U.S. was at a weak point with everything that's been going on. But that's not what has happened. They've been unified against Russia right now. Yeah, that's definitely true. And I think that was probably pretty surprising. Probably the most surprising in this sphere would be the uh, the very strong reaction of Germany and probably to a lesser extent, France. You know, the, the Nord Stream pipeline, I mean, it was almost immediately canceled or at least, you know, put on indefinite hold by Germany almost as soon as this started. And I think that was probably something that was was a little bit unexpected. Unfortunately, it looks too like the Russian government has dug itself into a bit more of a hole here with this. You know, on the one hand, they're very concerned to show a lot of strength. However, the more they do this, the more this becomes, you know, more of an atrocity. It's it's difficult to see how it would be more of an atrocity than it already is. You're attacking a neighbor on completely false pretenses. The more this happens, the more this demonstration of strength tries to go, the more the West is going to be united against it. And probably the more likely it is that Putin and the Russian government are going to lose the, I wouldn't necessarily call it support, but at least the tacit support of China on this and become further and further isolated. Yeah. So we're going to get more onto the, what the West is doing, the sanctions, what effects those are going to have in a minute. But I wanted to ask you about Putin because there's been a lot of news about, or, you know, you've seen in the speeches he's given his, you know, he seemed angrier. So how has his demeanor changed, if at all, over the last few weeks? Uh, Well, actually over the last few weeks, I think it's been pretty consistent However, if you look back over the last few years, 
and certainly over the last 22 years since he's been in power, there does seem to be a marked change in what is going on. You know, I know that a lot of the American and European commentators have talked about, you know, the distance he is obviously keeping from other world leaders, not only other world leaders, but even members of his own security council. Um, he's essentially talking to them from across long tables. There was a, um, a shot from the, uh, the Russian media yesterday of him talking with uh, Lavrov, his foreign minister. And, you know, it looks like they're about 25 feet away from each other. Now, this is something very different. I'm sure it's related to COVID and perhaps some kind of COVID paranoia. But essentially, the way a lot of Russian offices are set up, there will be the desk of whoever is in charge with a table that comes out of it in sort of like a T-shape. And this is how Putin used to, collect, uh, used to conduct a lot of his meetings. That has definitely changed, you know, and it does seem to reflect him being more of an isolated leader in this sense. I don't know how much of this is for show. I think a lot of the things he's been doing in his speeches and in his meetings lately have been completely for show. But it's definitely something that a lot of people are taking note of. I think the biggest difference is this calm, cool, collected and calculating Vladimir Putin that we've you know, sort of been used to over the last 22 years or so has really changed. And I think last Monday in his uh, his 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 speech to the uh, to the country, you know, and again, it's it's difficult to tell who this audience was. I mean, obviously, it was partially at least for Ukraine. It became extremely menacing, threatening, and more than I've you know seen before, almost almost snarling in its denunciation of Ukraine, the Ukrainians. At that point, it was obvious that the invasion was a done deal and it was going to commence within hours. That's just not mm -hmm. something that we've really seen before. Yeah. And when he was making that speech, a big term that was thrown out that he said was denazify, which is obviously ridiculous because the president of Ukraine is Jewish and had family members who died in the Holocaust. So you know, what did he mean by that? Is he like trying just trying to justify this war or does it mean something else? Yeah, the word is extremely charged in, well, it's, it's extremely charged anywhere, but especially in Russia. The use of this, um, you know, calling the people in Kiev fascisti, fascists, Nazis, neo-Nazis, this isn't very new. I mean, this was, this pretty much went all over the place, went viral in um, the Russian government language and the Russian state media ever since Maidan, you know, the uprisings back in, uh, in 2014 that eventually ousted the, um, the Moscow-backed president of Ukraine. So from that perspective, this word is not necessarily very new, but using it like this in combination with terms like genocide, one of the main claims and probably the strongest justification he's using toward, you know, for the for the Russian people to try and accept this is that there was a genocide of Russian speakers, ethnic Russians in eastern Ukraine. Um, this is also the reason for the recognition of the Donbass breakaway republic in Ukraine and the uh, Lugansk breakaway republic, you know, as as actual countries farcical as this was, this really might have been like the, uh, the first shot going out. Now, World War II in, in Russia and the Soviet Union was far more devastating than it was in the West. You know, they, they lost upwards of 20 million people, probably around 24 million or, 
or 25 million. This is also something that, I mean, exists in the national psyche as a great source of pride. It's almost natural that he would start describing the people that he is going to put forth as enemies as Nazis. We're getting, we're getting this in the West too. It's certainly not just the, uh, not just the Ukraine. You know, he sees the Ukrainian regime as a puppet regime installed by fascists from the West as well. This also kind of ties into the, uh, the description of NATO. You know, the argument against NATO, and it's not an illegitimate argument, is that this, this expansion of NATO from the West to the East is, is supposed to be mirroring the, the attacks from Germany in the 20th century. And, you know, to a certain extent, even the attack of Napoleon back in 1812, where Russia is, is threatened from the West by an expanding West. They're really, I mean, the, the term Nazi is guaranteed to get the Russians up in arms. To the extent to which they believe this, however, is, is a different matter. I mean, I think pretty much every Russian who knows anything about international affairs knows that Zelensky is, is Jewish. Mm-hmm. So that's what I wanted to ask you about, about the Russian people. How do they feel about this invasion? Because most of what they can, you know, experience is, you know, blatant Russian propaganda. But you've still got the internet and Twitter and stuff like that where you can, you know, find Western sources and outlets. But what is the overall mentality of the Russian people towards this invasion? This is this is a little bit hard to tell. Um, you know, the demonstrations we've seen up to this point have been pretty strong. Russian Russian state media is towing the line. Looking at it this morning, though, I mean, there seem to be maybe a couple of you know different cracks coming in, as if they're not you know necessarily even believing their own reporting. You know, as you probably know, they are not allowed to use the word war to describe what's going on here. You know, you can use it, you can use it in different contexts and things like that, but you cannot use it to describe what's happening in, in the Ukraine. It is a special operation. You cannot use the word Tarjenia, invasion. This is something that is, you know, just just completely taboo at this point. Despite the fact that, you know, pretty much everybody knows what it is. However, the state media is concentrating, I wouldn't say completely, but almost completely on what is happening in the eastern Ukraine. They are trying to focus on supposed atrocities committed by Ukrainian forces in Donetsk and Lugansk uh, to the exclusion of just about everything else. Kiev is barely being mentioned at all. And when it is, it's, you know, the fact that there are these fascists in Kiev who are, you know, dictating these atrocities against the Russian speakers in, in eastern Ukraine. This is being put forth as the justification. To the extent that people believe this, I've got to think that faith in this is, is deteriorating probably rapidly, given the extent to which we've seen the protests as well as the things that the independent media is reporting in Russia. Honestly, the way things are going right now, I think the clock is ticking on Dost, the independent television network, and Novaya Gazeta, uh, another independent media outlet and newspaper. They are being pretty careful about what they say, but they're covering many of the same things that, that the Western media is. The further this sinks into brutality, I think, and it's looking to do that within the next few hours, if not days, the more they're going to have to crack down on any dissent. And I think this is probably where, if anywhere, 
this whole invasion is really going to backfire. This is a fact. So I wanted to transition from in Russia to Ukraine. We're recording this on Tuesday morning, and it appears as though right now the Russian army is encircling the capital of Kiev and Kharkiv, which is right on the border with Russia. And you just said as of Tuesday morning, it looks like this is about to get much worse. How has Ukraine's army been holding up so far? And they've been protecting Kiev so far, but how much longer can they do that? If Russia just keeps um, bringing in resources, you know, I don't. I don't think I'm a military expert, but I definitely did not expect them to hold out this long. You know, I expected Kiev to fall within days. Much more surprising, though, is what's happening happening in in Kharkov, uh, Kharkiv in in Ukrainian. This was something that I really would have expected to fall within the first day or two. Um, given its proximity to Russia, given how close Russian artillery already was to it, I thought this was going to, you know, was going to collapse pretty quickly. As of, you know, right now, it still hasn't. So, I mean, you you have to think that Ukrainian forces, whether they're, you know, the regular Ukrainian army or just citizens with AKs, has acquitted itself amazingly well. You know, it is far different than what anybody expected, and I think certainly far different than what uh, what Putin expected. That said, it's obvious that they are going to, I think, try to make up for their mistakes. And I think they're going to do it in an extremely brutal way. You know, we saw this this missile attack on a uh, on a government building in Kharkiv. This actually comes on the heels of what seems to have been cluster bombs being used yesterday. Um, you know, this is a, a munition that is banned in most countries. It's an incredibly cruel device. You know, and of course, it, it looks like they're also moving in thermobaric munitions as well. Whether or not the Russian forces are going to go in and, you know, just completely flatten the cities, I think remains to be seen. You know, it really is. It's a worst case scenario for everybody, including the Russians, if they do that. If it happens, I don't really see them, you know, holding out for more than a week. Now, the cities fall, the government falls if they're to arrest Zelensky. I don't see this ending by any means. You know, the Ukrainians uh, have a history of partisan warfare, and I would expect it to continue, um, you know, at least resistance in some form of varying strengths for quite some time. That's what I was going to ask you. If Russia does take Kiev, what is likely to happen? Are they going to install a puppet government, and how are the Ukrainian people going to respond to that? Oh, yeah, there's no doubt about that. I mean, they would certainly install a, a puppet government. They definitely want to go back to the the pre-2014 status quo as far as Ukraine goes. I would expect, I, well, at least I would have earlier expected there to be a Ukrainian government in exile set up. But it's obvious at this point that there is going to be a very strong Ukrainian resistance. You know, there's there's really no doubt about it. One of the things which I think surprised a lot of Western observers, as well as, you know, the Russian authorities, which actually should not have come as as much of a surprise, is the is the motivation that the Ukrainians feel as far as defending their country. You know, it's it is worth pointing out that they are not strangers to Russian aggression. They're actually not strangers to genocidal acts against them 
coming obviously from, from Nazi Germany in the 1940s, but from Moscow. One of the things that isn't really being mentioned too much in the media is the Khaladamor, um, the engineered famine of 1932 and 1933, where around 4 million Ukrainians died, basically were starved to death you know, by, by Stalinist Moscow as a way to, you know, to finally crush any Ukrainian nationalism and Ukrainian resistance to, to Soviet power. You know, we don't see anything on that scale, you know, yet. And I, you know, I don't think it's going to quite, you know, hit that extent. But, you know, the Ukrainians have not forgotten this, even if the Russians have. So we talked about how um, the West has united behind Ukraine and they have sanctioned Russia. They've sanctioned their economy. They've sanctioned Putin personally. And, you know, that's caused the Russian economy to crash. The stock market has gone way down. The ruble has crashed. So what effect are these sanctions from the U.S. and the U.K. and the European Union? Those countries, are they going to have on the Russian economy now and potentially later? Uh, well, the bigger effects are going to be, be felt later. You know, the increasing isolation from the global financial system is going to hit is going to hit Russia very hard. Um, now, it will probably hit Putin a little bit less, but if it can hit, you know, hit the uh, the oligarchs, you know, upon whom his, you know, his, his support really, really depends. I think that may change things. By and large, though, I'm not really certain that that the sanctions are going to have a much larger effect. I do think, though, at least the, the financial financial sanctions, closing European airspace to Russian planes, further isolating this country, actually, I think is going to be just as strong as, you know, taking them out of the SWIFT system. And remember, this is not completely, I mean, it is, it is not something that they have done full scale, at least not yet. I think more at issue, and I think the question that's probably going to be coming up in the, uh, in the coming weeks, if this really does turn into, you know, you know, I hate to say it, but really a crime against humanity, which, you know, to a certain extent it already is, shutting off Russian natural gas and oil. At this point, that hasn't happened. And I don't know that there's necessarily going to be much of a stomach for it, at least in the United States, which is, is probably too bad. But I think this would, this would make things much more painful and I think have a much stronger and probably more immediate effect, you know, regular financial uh, sanctions. Is there anything else that could the US, the West could do besides that, that could actually harm Russia and could be you know, act as a deterrent to stop Russia right now? Well, yeah, I mean, really the best thing, and I, you know, I'm definitely a pacifist. I mean, I am not in favor of, you know, war in just about any circumstance, but almost the best thing we could do is keep getting them stinger missiles and the, uh, the javelin anti-tank weapons. To Ukraine. Yeah. Um, you know, it's going to be a difficult task, but I think, you know, the United States has been able to do this in situations where it has been, you know, even more difficult before. You know, I have to think that, you know, the Ukrainian military is getting some, well, quite a bit of advice, you know, from the Pentagon. Um, I mean, looking at these, you know, these long columns of Russian vehicles stretching towards Kiev, I mean, I'm sure that in the Pentagon, they are just you know, licking their chops at this kind of target, you know, and trying, trying to find a way for the Ukrainians to be able to hit that. I mean, this, for all the talk that Putin was making about Ukraine somehow being an existential threat to Russia, 
ridiculous as that was, I mean, these vehicles are an ex- existential threat to Ukraine, certainly Ukrainian sovereignty. You know, I think military advisors, weapons, you know, even if we cannot put personnel on the ground is going to be very important for what what happens in the coming days. All right. So finally, I just wanted to ask you, you know, what is the end game here? What is Putin trying to do? Could he potentially attack NATO, cyber attacks on NATO, any of that? Well, actually, with cyber attacks on NATO, what response would come from NATO from that, actually, first off? Well, yeah, first off, I'm surprised we haven't seen these already. And, you know, I'm, I, again, I'm not an expert in this field, so I don't really know if they are holding something in reserve or if they've been blocked. You know, Russia has a, a vaunted cybersecurity department, um, you know, and they, they are definitely capable of taking out cyber attacks. They've done so in Ukraine before. Oddly, though, the lights are on. Internet is working, much to the detriment of the Russian military. You know, the Ukrainian authorities are scoring propaganda victories almost every five minutes through social media. How Russia has not shut that down, I don't understand. I don't know if they've been blocked or they're just, they're holding something in reserve. Could and would they cyber attack NATO? Yes, definitely. You know, and I'm sure the responses will be, you know, to sort of steal the rhetoric that's coming out of the, uh, the American government, you know, proportional. The end game though is really difficult to see. You know, I don't really know if if the country is going to be divided up, if Russia is going to sort of like stop on the eastern side of the Dnieper River or to expand all the way to the west. I would ex- I would assume at this point that they'll probably try to, you know, to subjugate the entire country. They probably expected to do this already. Once that stops, you know, it's it's sort of a minor detail to it, but I would also imagine that they would take uh, Moldova, at least to the east of the uh, the Dniester River in Transnistria, which you know the so-called authorities there are, would be essentially begging to to be returned to Russia. The Russian army is already there, you know, so that would would not be a stretch. Belarus has already established itself as a client state. And, you know, they're going to fall further and further under the thrall of Moscow. Further east, Kazakhstan has actually been a little bit surprising. Um, I think they were asked to send troops to this. Russia sent troops to, to, to Kazakhstan right around um, December and early January when they were having uprisings there to try and quell the uprisings. Thus far, Kazakhstan has not, has not responded in kind. Um, so it'll definitely be interesting, interesting to see what happens over there. As far as attacking NATO, yeah, I mean, this is, this is probably the scariest question of all. You know, we saw how, I think it was the day before yesterday, that, that Putin made a big show of putting, you know, the nuclear forces on alert. This is actually, this actually, I mean, to sort of, you know, sidetrack this for a little bit, this was a very, very interesting and strange move. It's unclear really to me who this was for. You know, it had to be for the domestic audience. If he were to put his nuclear forces on alert and not say anything, we would know right away. So, I mean, it, it, it would not necessarily be a secret other than to the, uh, the Russian people probably, but he wants them to know that this is what he's doing. He probably also wants, you know, people in Western Europe and the United States to know that he has this nuclear saber and he is rattling it very, very loudly. How this affects the rest of NATO is, I guess, kind of an open question. 
Putin is well aware and has admitted as such that, you know, a conventional war against NATO would go very badly for Russia. Russia could not stand up to a war or, you know, any kind of assault coming from Western Europe. I mean, it's just, you know, he knows this and thus all of the, uh, the nuclear posturing. Um, I'd seen estimates, though, that, you know, in the Baltics, he could be he could be in Riga probably within 36 hours, the capital of Latvia. Vilnius, the capital of Ukraine, probably much sooner. It's capital you know, of Lithuania. I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, Lithuania. Probably much sooner. It's it's actually much much closer to the borders than either Tallinn in Estonia or or Riga in Latvia. There are sizable Russian populations there. It would be easy for him to transfer the excuse that he's been using to invade Ukraine over to the Baltic states. It would be very easy, especially in a town like Narva, which is I mean, you can literally see Russia from Narva. It is it is right across the river, and it is filled with Russian speakers. Whether or not this would happen, I, I just, I have to doubt it. That would be World War III. Uh-oh. And that really would be the, the worst case scenario. Yeah, because Putin knows, because if he attacked or he, you know, troops came into the Baltics or, you know, if he takes Ukraine, Poland is right there too. If he did that, Article 5 of NATO would be triggered and it wouldn't just be Western Europe. It would be the United States too. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what that's why I mentioned Moldova too. Moldova is not part of NATO. You know, not that he would necessarily have to invade all of Moldova, but you know, Transnistria right there, once Ukraine falls, Transnistria would be returned to the Ukraine. I mean, that is like the first move that I see happening. An invasion of Poland, I really don't think is in the cards, at least not within the uh, the foreseeable future. But then again, you know, a month ago, you know, I told I told a friend of mine um, that I just don't see Russia invading. I mean, it was really, I think, about maybe two or three weeks ago that, you know, it looked like this was inevitable. And as the rhetoric, you know, really amped up, it became a near certainty. Speaking of this rhetoric, too, there's, I mean, there's, there's another point, at least in the Russian media, that has really kind of been disturbing lately, at least as far as, you know, the conduct of the war goes. They are concentrating, as I said before, mostly on what's happening in the East. They're using words like liberation, that they are liberating these, these towns and these cities and these people from, you know, a tyrannical Ukrainian regime. We talked about Nazis before. This is the same, this is the same vocabulary that they were using as the Soviet army was marching west towards Berlin, liberating places that used to be under the, uh, the Nazi thumb. Now, Liberation was very much a relative term. I mean, you were trading the Nazis for, you know, the Stalinist regime, but this is what's happening right now, too. So one would have to think that they are going to push further and further west, you know, to ostensibly liberate people from the tyranny that they see going on there. Good to know. All right. Well, Dr. Bobby, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for explaining this whole situation a lot better than I can. It's definitely ongoing. So hopefully be able to have you back to talk about this once again but thanks for coming on the podcast yep, it's definitely a fluid situation thanks for having me on here xander's facts and there you have it that is this week's xander's facts flashback dr bobby that was his first appearance on the podcast he's been on the podcast also more recently you should check out those episodes of the podcast 
where he talks about Ukraine. And you should also just check on the news because a lot more stuff has happened regarding that situation in the months since because we're in August now. So things have changed. But that's this week's Xander's Facts Flashback. Thank you all for listening. And remember, if you liked all the facts that we had on the Sanders Facts Flashback, remember to click the follow button on this podcast, download this episode, rate and review the podcast, go on all your socials, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Sanders Facts, that's Sanders with a Z. And most importantly, remember to tell all your friends, spread the facts, Xander's Facts Podcast. Remember to check out Sanders Facts on YouTube because this flashback is going on YouTube. Check that out, Xander's Facts. Search it, look it up, watch, be happy. Check out the Xander's Facts link tree. It's got all the Xander's Facts links that you need for social media, for YouTube, for this podcast, and for Xander's Weekend Facts, which you should check out every Sunday morning. Those are still coming out in August, every Sunday morning. Check out Xander's Weekend Facts in the link in this episode's description. But that is the Xander's Facts flashback. We are returning with the Xander's Facts podcast in a couple of weeks. So next week, we're going to have another Xander's Facts flashback, but it is going to be a topic that you are going to want to check out. I'm pretty sure of it. So there you go. That is it. That is a wrap on this Xander's Facts flashback. Thank you all for listening, and we'll be back with a new Xander's Facts flashback next week. Bro.